Do you feel abandoned by God? Does he feel distant and disconnected? It's as if God didn't care about you today, and you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Do you respond with hope or despair? Little Orphan Annie sings a song at the beginning of the musical as she looks out her window feeling all alone in the world. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow, you're only a day away. That must have been how Zechariah felt on a night in February of 519 B.C. when he received eight visions of hope for the future of Israel. These were visions, not dreams. There is a different Hebrew word for dreams, and very few revelations came through dreams in the Old Testament. Visions are revelations of God which are experienced in a full, conscious state by the prophet who can interact and ask questions. He's not asleep, but very much awake during these visionary experiences. He had full control of his mental faculties, unlike our nightmares, for example. Apparently, the visions all occurred on the same night. The date in verse 7 is very significant. Zechariah received these visions about three months after preaching his first message in verses 1 through 6 of Zechariah chapter 1. It was on this same day, five months earlier, that the people had begun to rebuild the temple according to Haggai 1, 14 and 15. The people had repented of their sins of yesterday. God gave them promises of hope for tomorrow, which will help them face today. These visions are not always easy to interpret in their details, but they are beautiful pictures of God's promises of hope for his people. We must remember that the language is often symbolic. It is intended to encourage us by the use of images and word pictures. God is still on his throne, even when you feel all alone. The first two visions come in chapter 1, with a set of promises in between the two visions. The message is simple. God defends his people. In vision 1, we see that God defends his people with his presence in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 1. The basic message of this first vision is that God is present whether we know it or not. God is with us even when he seems invisible. Notice that he is present on patrol in verses 8 through 11. I saw at night and behold... A man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful 
and quiet. God draws an analogy for the prophet between the war horses of the Persian Empire who traveled in patrols for the king around the empire and God's patrolling of the world through his angels. Horses were the symbols of military might in the ancient world. They were equivalent to tanks in World War II and missiles today. You judged your military might by how many horses and chariots you had in your army. The rider on the red horse is the angel of the Lord identified in verse 11. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ himself. The angel of the Lord is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the second person of the triune Godhead, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 13, where Hagar calls the angel of the Lord God. The Babylonian Talmud, a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, writes about Zechariah 1 verse 8, our text, This man is no other than the Holy One. Blessed is he, for it is said, the Lord is a man of war. The interpreting angel who speaks to Zechariah in verse 9 is different than the angel of the Lord. This interpreting angel will be with Zechariah throughout the eight night visions, and he is to explain the visions to the prophet. The myrtle trees represent Israel, according to most scholars. The myrtle tree was a small evergreen shrub that could attain a height of about eight feet under good conditions. It had dark green leaves with small white flowers and emitted a fragrant aroma. The myrtle trees are located in a ravine. There were myrtle trees in the Kidron Valley, the ravine outside the city of Jerusalem in ancient times. The point is likely that Israel is in an oppressed state, yet God is still in her midst. The other horses are apparently angels who are part of a heavenly patrol on earth, and they report back to the angel of the Lord. The colors may be significant, but I wouldn't make too much of them. The angels report that the whole world is at peace and rest. The picture Zechariah sees is disturbing for the Israelites. The Persian Empire is at peace, yet Israel is oppressed. It's as if God has forgotten them. The vision pictures the world at rest, but Israel feels abandoned by God. People all over are living in peace and prosperity, while God's people live in turmoil and poverty. Don't we feel that way at times? You may feel like everyone else is doing great while you struggle along. The COVID-19 pandemic has widened that disparity between the haves and the have-nots in our world. Remember, God is with you, just as he stood unseen in the midst of Israel, the downtrodden myrtle trees in the bottom of the ravine. God is present on control in this world, and he is present by intercession, verses 12 and 13. 
Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. The cry goes up from God's people, How long will you have no compassion on us? Have you ever cried out to God that way as you looked around at the world? The question of time is central to our complaints to God. How long is a time problem? There is a little ditty that goes like this. There was a young lady named Bright whose speed was much greater than light. So she set off one day in a relative way and returned on the previous night. Our problem is that we are time-bound beings. We are contained within time, wishing we could get faster than time. We see events as measured in time sequences that limit us. So we cry out, how long? Just think what it would be like to get outside of time and see things not in sequence, but as a whole. God is outside time. He is not time-bound. He created time, but he is not bound by our sequences of action. It's similar to an author who writes a mystery novel. The characters within that novel are bound within a time frame that the author creates. Yet the author is outside that time frame. He alone can see the whole, the end from the beginning. The author is not bound by time. God is like the author of that novel. He creates the time sequences within which we function. Yet he is not bound by those time sequences. The absolutely stunning thing is that God chooses to function within those time sequences in order to work with us in our circumstances. I want you to notice that it is the angel of the Lord who asks the question, how long? The second person of the triune Godhead is asking our questions for us, even though he is not bound by our time sequences. He is praying our prayers, not because he needs an answer. He's God. He is praying our prayers because he cares about us. He voices our pain to God. We call this intercession. Intercession is God pleading our case with himself. It's just like Jesus interceding for us in John 17. Does this not comfort you, my friend? God defends us with his presence. He is here, in our midst, wherever we are and whenever we feel abandoned. He is here, in our world, whenever we need him. He is here now, interceding for us. Jesus prays our prayers. He voices our hurts to God, even when we cannot find the words to express them. When you cannot pray, Jesus prays your prayers. He is our advocate, 
and our defender in this life. Here is a great truth we all need to grab hold of in our situations. God is here with us, even when we feel abandoned and we cannot see him. He is with us even when he seems invisible to us. God defends his people with his presence. And secondly, God defends his people with his promises. Verses 14 to 17. We come now to the section between the two visions. God gives Zechariah a message to preach to the people. The message is a message of comfort, for it contains the promises of Almighty God to his people. He expresses two promises in these verses. He expresses a promise of concern in verses 14 and 15. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. God was jealous for his people and angry with the nations who oppressed them. Those emotions are the language of love. Divine jealousy is very close to divine anger. The Hebrew word for jealous is a word whose root can be traced to the Arabic word meaning to become very red. In other words, jealousy makes us red in the face with emotion. Divine jealousy is the language of love. God wants our affections. He wants our undivided loyalty. He does not want to share our love with anyone or anything else. So his jealousy is the emotion by which he lays claim to our affections. God wants to be first in our hearts. Now God had used the nations to punish Israel. They were his instruments of discipline. Yet the nations had overstepped their bounds. The words in verse 15 indicate that the nations were at ease. They were smug. The nations had destroyed Israel, but they were not content to do that temporarily as instruments of divine discipline. No, the nations went way beyond discipline and abused God's people. God makes a distinction between discipline and abuse much as we do on the human level. So God says, I was angry for a little while with Israel, but I am very angry with the nations who abused Israel. The point is, God cares. These emotions in God communicate his love for his people. We, like Israel, have the promise of his concern and watch care over us. Yes, God uses trials and pain to teach us, even to discipline us sometimes. But he is angry with those who take that liberty to abuse us. He will defend his people from such abuse. We have his word on it. Second, he expresses a promise of return in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, 
I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. I think this is such a beautiful picture of God's love. Look back at verse 3. Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. You see, when we return to the Lord, he promises to return to us. We have his word on it. He never stops loving us. He is just waiting for us to come back to him. The expression about the measuring line is a symbol of God's restoration of the city of Jerusalem. He will measure the city to demonstrate its return to its great glory as the city of God. God will rebuild his house, the temple in Jerusalem, and bring prosperity to the city once again. Remember that they were right then building the temple from its ruins, so God is encouraging them with his promises. Four times in verse 17, the word again is mentioned. The lesson is that when man repents, God returns. He is the God of second chances. His eyes never leave those he loves. One writer put it this way, When the world was busy with its own affairs, God's eye and the heart of the Messiah were upon the lowliest state of Israel and upon the temple in Jerusalem. Friends, God loves us with an intense love, just like his love for Israel. His intense love burns white hot with jealousy for our affections and anger for our enemies. God's love is not a passive, platonic, distant emotion. God's love is passion in its purest form. God's love is a flaming fire which consumes those who reject it, but warms those who accept it. Such is the love of our God. And I, I for one find great comfort in such a God of pure, passionate love. God defends his people with his presence first. Second, God defends his people with his promises. And third, God defends his people with his power, verses 18 to 21. The people of God face powerful enemies. That should never surprise us. I am often amazed when I hear Christians who are surprised when the world acts against Christianity. Many American Christians, for example, fell into despair when Donald Trump didn't win the presidential election in 2020 because they were putting their faith in a political leader. They thought he would protect them from persecution. But friends, don't wring your hands and cry, the sky is falling, the sky is falling like chicken little, when elections don't turn out like we want and we face persecution for our faith. The world is anti-Christian, folks. It has always been anti-God. That should not surprise us. That should not worry us. God calls us to live out our faith in a hostile world, just as the Israelites were called to live out their faith 
in a hostile world. So let's look at the power of the enemy, first of all, in verses 18 and 19. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Zechariah sees his second vision, a vision of four horns. He asks what these horns represent. The angel says that the horns represent the nations which have scattered or perhaps will scatter the people of Israel. In the Hebrew, it could be translated either way as have scattered or will scatter. Horns in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament are often symbols of power and strength. Horns were mounted on thrones and became royal symbols of the king's power to kill and wage war. Horns were often used of kingdoms, nations, or even kings in Scripture. In fact, the Targum translates these horns as kingdoms. The kingdoms which Zechariah is speaking about have been interpreted in various ways by scholars. Let me suggest to you that they are best taken as referring to the Gentile nations which Daniel spoke about in Daniel chapters 2 and 7. These kingdoms are the successive empires which dominated Israel throughout her history. I think that the horns refer to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. I cannot, of course, be dogmatic about this and others understand it differently. I think it is less important that we be able to identify the horns specifically than that we understand the point God is making in this prophecy. God is saying that Israel has always had enemies and that those enemies will be finally defeated one day. The enemies of God's people are powerful, but God is way, way more powerful. The enemies of God's people are great, but God is way, way greater. We must keep our eyes on the power of the defender in verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord showed, showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But... These craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Zechariah identifies four craftsmen or sculptors in his vision. The Hebrew word is best understood as a smith. It is someone who works with a chisel and breaks away stone with a hammer. These sculptors will terrify and defeat the four horns. They will chisel away the power of the kingdoms. God wants his people to know that there are answers to these powerful enemies. These horns who are arrogant and reject God and go beyond all boundaries in their abuse of God's people will be dealt with by the sculptors that God raises up to destroy them. 
If the horns refer to Daniel's four kingdoms, then three of the craftsmen are also horns. God used Babylon to discipline Israel, but then he raised up Persia to judge Babylon. Then God raised up Greece to judge Persia, and God raised up Rome to judge Greece. Persia, Greece, and Rome were both horns and craftsmen. The last kingdom in Daniel is judged by the kingdom of Christ. We could draw the analogy to America and Saddam Hussein in Iraq. God raised up America to judge the arrogance of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. But we best not get too proud for the history of the world demonstrates that God will not hesitate to deal with our arrogance as well. He may raise up another nation to judge America. Remember, friends, America is not God's chosen nation. Israel is and always will be. America is not the new Israel. God has not replaced ancient Israel with promises to America. America is like all the other nations of the world. Like Rome or Babylon, God raises nations up and takes nations down according to his sovereign will. We live in a world hostile to God's word, just like Israel. Enemies rise up against the church all the time. The great comfort of Zechariah is that just like the Israelites, God has an answer to all those enemies. He's in charge. There has never been a time, and there never will be a time, that God does not defend his people with his sovereign power. He just may not defend us the way we want, or when we want him to do it. We may not always understand God's ways, but we can trust his defense that he is able to deliver us in his time. That is why I, I like what Philip Yancey wrote. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. When my daughter was little, she had this toy which someone gave her for Christmas. It made a horrendous squeaking noise which would drive the sanest parents crazy. There were three little dolphins which traveled around a plastic track until they came to stop where, this, where they mysteriously moved up along a cardboard track and then slid nicely through a ring and down the track again to repeat the process all over again. The key, of course, was a little magnet which was on the back of the dolphins and connected to an unseen magnet in the track. If the dolphins got off the track and no longer connected with the magnet, then the trick of climbing up the back of the board wouldn't work. Well, imagine all of history like a giant board with the unseen magnet of God's hand guiding the events and affairs of people and nations and kingdoms and presidents all over the board of the world. We cannot see God at work many times, but he is still working behind the visible world in which we live. Friends, are you afraid today? God can handle that. Are you worried about money? 
God can handle that. Are you persecuted, laughed at, or ridiculed? God can handle that. Do the enemies of Christianity seem to be winning? God can handle that. Do you feel abandoned and alone? God can handle that. Put yourself in the hands of Almighty God and trust Him. You are in good hands with God, my friends, because God knows how to defend His own.